passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Crosswinds. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan. I am the campus pastor of our Spencer campus here at Crosswinds Church. We are a multi-campus church with a campus in Spirit Lake as well as this campus here in Spencer. We are thrilled that you are here with us this morning and joining us for worship. Uh, as we continue working our way through this series that I mentioned last week that, or earlier in the service about our intersection, the intersection between our faith and our work. And if you haven't been here uh, before, I want to just give a brief recap of where we've been the last couple of weeks. As we've been working our way, uh, looking at something that is very important to God, it's very important to each and every one of us, and that is our work. Last couple of weeks, we first looked at God's original plan for work. And as we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we saw that God created work to be a good thing. It was a part of his original creation. It was a part of his plan from the very beginning. In fact, he is a God who works, and he wanted to join us in his own work. But of course, it didn't just stay that way. When sin entered into the world, we saw that work, like everything else, was corrupted. Now work can be hard, painful, can seem meaningless, can seem fruitless. Work, just like all of creation, has been corrupted by sin and has been corrupted by the fall. And last week we saw how our faith influences or changes the way that we work. We saw that work might not be changed in itself, but we as workers have been changed. We saw that we are new creations. And because we are new creations, we have been given a new perspective on our work. And with that new perspective, we are guided by a new compass. A new compass points us towards a new purpose, all for the glory of our new boss. As we've been working our way through this series, you might have been saying, hey, you know what? I, I'm tracking with this. I, I understand where we're going. I understand what you're saying. I can see where scripture is pointing to. I wouldn't have reached that conclusion on my own, but I can see where you're getting this. But there's a question that might be lurking at the back of your mind. What about the end? What about what comes next? When Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, to restore all things, what happens to our work then? Does our work really matter in the grand scheme of things? Maybe you've wrestled with this question before. I know that I wrestled with it at a yet relatively young age. My first job was at the age of nine, working for the free paper in town, delivering those, uh, you know, the equivalent of the daily shopper. I did this uh, once a week where there would be papers delivered to my house. I would fold them. I would stuff them into little packages and I would deliver them. After doing this for a year or two and after seeing basically every single paper that I had delivered still on people's doorsteps week after week after week, I began to wonder whether this was worth it, whether there was much meaning to the job that I was doing. And maybe you find yourself in a somewhat similar situation. Maybe you have more responsibilities in your job than just delivering a paper, but you still wonder whether your work matters in the grand scheme of things. You wonder whether your work is going to matter in five years, whether it's actually going to make a difference in 10 years or 100 or even 1,000 years. 
Some of you would say, well, yes, unequivocally, yes, my work does make a difference. My work will stand the test of time, and I can see how it makes a difference each and every day. But most of us aren't like that. Maybe some of us would say, you know, I I can cognitively recognize that my work does make a difference, even though I don't see a lot of change each and every day. I don't see the difference that it's making. And still others of us would say, well, my work doesn't really matter at all. That's what I see of my work. The question remains, will our work matter when Christ returns? Or another way to ask this question, does my work really matter in the light of eternity? As you can tell from your bulletin and your sermon notes, that's the question we're going to be wrestling with today. Does my work actually matter in light of eternity? And as we explore this topic, we're going to see that our work really does matter. It really does mean something, even with eternity, factored into the equation. Well, how is that? Our work matters because it is training today for reigning tomorrow. Our work matters today because it is training today for reigning tomorrow. You see, our work matters in light of eternity because it trains us for the life to come. We're going to see in a moment that the Bible tells us that we're going to reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the ways that we prepare for that task is through our work. It's through faithfully doing our work today. As we explore this topic of how our work trains us to reign tomorrow, we're going to do it by answering two questions. First, we're going to look at the question, what will life be like in the new heavens and the new earth? And then after that, we're going to ask the question, what will work be like in the new heavens and the new earth? Notice that second question already says something, that there is going to be work in the new heavens and the new earth. If you were expecting heaven or, or the new heavens and the new earth, the life to come to be a, uh, an atemporal lounge around where you don't have to do anything, then you're going to be sorely disappointed when you get there in a very good way because it's so much better than that. To answer these questions, we're going to be at the last two chapters of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22 as we explore the new heavens and the new earth. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to those chapters. Otherwise, the passage is printed in your sermon notes uh, this morning. So let's ask this question. What will life be like in the new heavens and the new earth? First, notice my terminology. I'm talking about the new heavens and the new earth. I'm not saying heaven. I haven't said just heaven by itself yet. Is there a difference? Yes, there is a difference. Heaven is an actual place right now. If you were, God forbid, to die today as a Christian, you would go to heaven. This is the place where God dwells. The way to think of this is a place where we get to rest from our struggles that we experience here on earth. But the current heaven is not our permanent home. We will live there with God, yes, but it is not permanent. We dwell with him as disembodied spirits in the current heaven. But when Christ returns, he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. And that is our home. That is the place where we will live forever with God. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will live with resurrected bodies. We will dwell with him and we will continue our work there. And that's what the last two chapters of the book of Revelation describe. I want to just read a few excerpts from these two chapters. You can follow along in your sermon notes as I'm going to jump around a little bit. 
Uh, going to first look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21, and then 22 through 27, and then finally chapter 22, 1 through 5. So hear these words from God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need for a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need for a lamp or light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The words that are spoken here, oftentimes fly in the conventional thought of what the life to come is going to be like. Notice what is notably absent in this passage or or different from the way our society typically thinks of the life to come. First of all, humans are still humans. Humans aren't angels. They're not able to fly around or whisk around. They are still humans with bodies in this passage. Notice what else is missing from this. This isn't a a bad Red Bull commercial where everyone's living on clouds with harps. If you've ever been a little nervous about going to heaven because you're not all that musical and you really get pretty nervous about playing the harp for the rest of eternity, I got some really good news for you. You don't get a harp when you enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Will there be harps? Well, probably. I'm sure there's going to be one or two in the heavenly orchestras. But here's the really good news. If you don't like playing the harp, you don't have to learn how to play the harp. In the same way, there are going to be clouds up there, but no one's living on them. It'll be the exact same way that there are clouds here today. Another thing that's missing is there's not nonstop singing in the new heavens and the new earth. If you were nervous about heaven, uh, about spending eternity with God because you think it's going to be just some long, really, really, really long church service, don't worry about it. That's not what's going to happen either. And notice the language here. The new heavens and the new earth. Well, they're they're still very earthy. There's still dirt. There's still mountains. 
There's still a place to run. There's still blood pumping through your veins. It's resurrected blood pumping through resurrected veins in your resurrected body, yes. But it is still a body. It is still earthy. There's many other things we could talk about that our traditional view of of the life to come in our society is, is completely wrong. But let's go ahead and see what this passage actually tells us about what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth. First, and this is going to be earth-shattering to you all, uh, all will be new. All will be new in the new heavens and the new earth. It sounds very repetitive, but it's very important for us this morning. Take a look at the first verse of chapter 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The new heavens and the new earth will be, well, they'll be new. So the question comes, well, what happens to the current heavens and the current earth? What does it mean when John, the one who saw this vision in Revelation 21, what does it mean when he says that the current heavens, the first heavens and the first earth had passed away? I would guess most of us have been taught that at the end of this age, this world will be burned and it will be destroyed. I think that that's safe to say that most of us have been taught that, whether we believe it or not. After all, it comes from passages like Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, where it says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Sounds pretty straightforward, right? Jesus comes back, the heavens pass away, and the heavenly bodies are burned. Then a few verses later, we have in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It seems like Peter is telling us that God will destroy the old when he brings the new. But I want to take a moment and look at the context of 2 Peter. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 as a whole. And and as you do that, you will see that right before Peter talks about burning the the heavenly bodies, he makes mention of Noah. Why is that significant? Because Noah is another way that God had brought judgment upon the world. He destroyed the world with a flood. But a question for us, did that flood actually destroy the whole world? Was it completely destroyed to the point where God had to create a new earth for Noah and his family to dwell upon? No. It was a way of cleansing the earth of sin. Was it perfect? No, it wasn't. But it cleansed it of the sin that existed on the earth. Peter speaks of the fire in the last days in the exact same way. Just as silver or as gold is refined in the fire, God is going to use fire to cleanse the earth for us. In fact, if you look at 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he uses this imagery of fire being a refinement or being a a way to purify us or purify something. Many times, God uses fire in the last day as a way to purify what he has already created. That might sound new to you, and you might not be convinced yet. So uh, let's look at the word new here in Second Peter chapter 3 in Revelation 21 and 22. 
The word new is a relatively special uh, word, really relatively different word than what we con- commonly think of. Uh, and to explain this, I want to ask a question. How many of you have taken Spanish before? Have had some sort of training in Spanish, whether it's, you know, a semester or, you know, four years, but it was like 10 decades ago or whatever like that. Okay, so we got, we got some people who have taken Spanish in here. And Spanish, there's this special thing that happens with the word nuevo, the word new. Depending on where you put the word new, it will mean something different. So if you say nuevo caro, that means, uh, let me make sure I do this right. Um, that means a new car, okay? If you say caro nuevo, then that means a brand new car. So the first way of saying it, when you put the adjective in front of the noun, it means something that is new to you. But the emphasis changes when you put it behind the word. If you're a Spanish major, then please don't correct me in the middle of this. Uh, you're really going to ruin my argument here. Uh, <laughs> It changes the emphasis on the word depending on where it is placed. So you have sometimes where it means new to me, not saying anything about the age of the car or the age of the object, or you're saying brand new. It just came off of the factory assembly line. Greek does something somewhat similar, but it uses two different words. One word is used to refer to something that is brand new. It just came out of nothing. God's creation is this type of new. But then there's another word. Another word that is often used as new called kainos. And that word refers to something that is not necessarily temporally new, but qualitatively new. In other words, it's not something that necessarily has been created out of nothing, but it is something that is significantly better than what came before. That word is the one that's used in 2 Peter That word is the one that's used in Revelation when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. It's not making a statement about creating out of nothing. It's saying that this is something that is far better than what came before. This same word is actually used for the concept of the new covenant in the New Testament. Why is that significant? It's significant because, one, it's significantly better than what came before But two, it's telling us that this is a continuation of the way that God worked in the Old Testament. It's a continuation of the way that God worked through Moses and through the law. And what we see in the new heavens and the new earth, it's really just a continuation, a refinement, a purification, something that's far better than the current heavens and the new earth, but still the current heavens and the current earth nonetheless. Uh, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8 when he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in order that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Why would the current heavens and the current earth long for the day for themselves to be destroyed? They long for the day of being set free from corruption. To obtain the freedom that will come through Christ's return. The new heavens and the new earth are the current heavens and the current earth just set free from the bondage of sin, made new, far from the influence 
of wickedness and corruption. One more thought on this, and I'm, I'm hammering this a lot because it's so significant. I just want us to look at the way that God works in the Bible. If you're not convinced of this, if you just look at the way God works in the Bible. How often does God give up on his people? How often does God destroy them and just decide to start over and create something from nothing? You contrast that with how often God commits to the harder task of restoring his people, making them more like him, renewing them and fixing them. That's the picture of God that we see from the very beginning of of chapter 1 in Genesis all the way through Revelation 22. Not a God who destroys things and starts over, but takes what has been ruined by sin and makes it new, restores it to its former glory. In fact, if God were to be, uh, if God were supposed to destroy the current heavens and the current earth in order to make way for the new heavens and the new earth, then Satan has won a major victory because he has corrupted creation beyond repair of God. But if God is one who restores, renews creation, it shows a great, great victory for God because not only did the cross bring us individual salvation, but it was powerful enough to make everything right, to restore everything to the way it once was. See, scripture is clear on this, that all will be made new. Now, why do I spend so much time on this? Because of its implications for our work and for our life. If God were to torch the world when he came back, uh, then our work really is in large part meaningless. If you were in the process of restoring your house and God comes back the moment you have it finished, then in large part you have wasted some of your time. Because it just got burned to ashes anyway. But if this current heavens and current earth, if if these are the same thing as the new heavens and the new earth, then our work may last. I would not be at all surprised if Michelangelo's statue of David were found in the new heavens and the new earth. I would not be at all surprised if the Mona Lisa was found in the new heavens and the new earth. I would not be at all surprised if football stadiums or or basketball stadiums or some of the wonderful architecture that we see around us is found in the new heavens and the new earth. Am I saying that it will be? Well, no. Scripture doesn't tell us that. Just that I wouldn't be surprised. See, our work matters today because it affects our future home, the new heavens and the new earth. That's our first point that that I want to make here. The second one is this, that sin will be defeated. That's what we see in the new heavens and the new earth, that sin will be defeated. Again, nothing earth-shattering here. I just want to reread verse 1 and and go on to verse 2. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now, when you read that very last part of verse one, where it talks about the sea being no more, how many of you are secretly disappointed? How many of you love standing by the ocean, just feeling small as as the waves uh, continue to crash in? I know I sometimes feel disappointed about that, but there's the good news. This is not saying that there will no longer be any large bodies of water in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a symbolic way of saying that God will destroy chaos. God will make chaos into order. He will conquer it. In the ancient days, the Israelites were terrified of the sea. 
They saw the sea as the worst evil imaginable. That's why they say in like things like Psalm 65, they say this, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God, of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Notice what he says there. You still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. You bring order to that which is chaos. In the beginning of the Bible, if you look at the creation story, God takes that which is chaos, chaos is found in the waters, and he brings order to it by bringing up dry land. God is a God who conquers chaos. And the new heavens and the new earth, this chaos will be completely conquered as will sin itself. That's why he uses this image of the new Jerusalem, one of purity, undefiled like a bride for her wedding day. There will be no sin because chaos has been defeated. So sin will be defeated. We see that. What else do we see? Well, although all will be new, there will still be pieces of the old. There will still be pieces of the old. This is found in in verse 3. It says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. In Eden, God dwelt with Adam and Eve. And here we see a return to that state. We see a return to the way things once were. Once more, we will dwell with God. Chapter 22 of Revelation tells us that there is actually going to be a tree of life. Well, that tree of life is found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the garden. And it will be found in the city of the new Jerusalem. Sometime I encourage you to just read the first three chapters of the Bible and the last three chapters of the Bible. See the symbols that are started in Genesis 1 through 3 and how they're picked up in Revelation 20 through 22. You'll see that in a large way, the new heavens and the new earth are a return to the way things once were. Now, does he improve upon that? Does he make the new heavens and the new earth better than the garden originally? Yes, but it's no less than a return to the way things once were. You can probably guess where this is going. We spent a a Sunday looking at God's original plan for work, and if the new heavens and the new earth are returned to the way God once had creation, that means that we will return to looking at work the way we once did. See, just as Adam and Eve were created to work in the garden, so also in the new heavens and the new earth, we will go back to work. But our work will not be defiled by sin like it is now. It will be cleansed, purified, protected. It will give us complete and utter joy. And God will be completely and utterly glorified through that work. Not only that, but our joy will abound. This is found in verse 4. It says this, And he said, excuse me, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
Joy will abound because sin has been defeated and with it, all of its effects will disappear. There will no longer be pain. There will no longer be mourning. Death itself will be put to death. All of it will be removed and replaced with unending joy and the chance to dwell with God once more. What else does Revelation 21 tell us? Well, it tells us that all of our lives will be worship. This is found in verses 22 and 23. It says this, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. See, the temple was the center of worship in Israel. And by saying that there will no longer be a temple, what Revelation is saying is that there is no need for a central place to gather to worship God and to meet with him. Instead, because God dwells among us and because God gives us all light, all of our lives will be worshiped, not just the church things. That's good news. No matter how spiritual we may seem, all of our lives will be worshiped. I'm going to be the first to admit that I love worship through song. But I don't think I could do it for eternity. A couple years ago, I had the chance to see Hillsong United in a concert in Atlanta. And it was a wonderful concert. Uh, It was a long concert. After two and a half, three hours of singing, we still were going on. And I was ready for a break. The good news of the new heavens and the new earth is that All of our lives will be worship. Not just gathering together on a Sunday morning will be considered worship. Because that's the way God has things set up now. Revelation reminds us that all of our acts, all of our deeds, all of our work can be and should be and will be worship. That means that building a cabinet with Jesus or Joseph will be worship. Camping with Paul the tent maker will be worship worship. Discussing fabrics and new articles of clothing with Lydia of Thyatira, who, by the way, was in that business thousands of years ago, will be considered worship. All of our lives will be worship. I could go on and on. I love this topic, but I just want to look at one more thing that we see from Revelation 21 and 22, and that's this. We will reign with God. We will reign with God. Take a look at verses four and five, or three through five. It says this No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. We will reign with God forever and ever. This is undoubtedly one of the most confusing, most mind-blowing, most amazing truths of the new heavens and the new earth. That God will choose us to govern his creation alongside of him. As glorified humanity, we will govern creation with God just like Adam and Eve did in the original garden. And that's where we bridge into our second question. What will work be like in the new heavens and the new earth? 
But first of all, as I already said, there's going to be work. There will be work in heaven. We see quite clearly the new heavens and the new earth are a return to God's original plan for creation. And that includes our work. Revelation 22 and 23 says this, or 22 verse 3 says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. That word worship is often translated as serve. The way that we worship God is through serving him, through our service, through our acts, through our work. We will worship God. So the question is, well, what what constitutes as these acts of worship, this service, this work before God? Well, pretty much everything. It doesn't matter what you talk about. Creating new God, goods will exist in heaven. Dispersing those goods will exist in heaven. Whether it's creating new inventions, whether it's farming, whether it's building, whether it's teaching, you could go on and on and on. In fact, I can only think of really three types of careers that are uh, not immoral that will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth. First, uh, pastors probably won't exist in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's be honest. How many of you are going to want to talk to me about God when he lives down the street from you? I, I, I'm okay with that. I, I have all of eternity to figure out what else I'm going to do with my life. Uh, I, I might be a bum for a few years, but I'll be all right. Second, health professions. There's no need for doctors anymore because all effects of the, of the fall have been destroyed. And third, law enforcement. Sorry, Tim. You won't have a job either. But we don't have to worry about that because, as I said, we're going to have plenty of time to figure out what else we are good at in the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the coolest things that I like to think about when I think of, of this work in the new heavens and the new earth is the concept of learning. Maybe I'm a little nerdy and I, I like learning a little bit too much, but there's another misconception out there that believes that when we get to heaven, we'll know everything. We'll know everything there is to know. But our limited knowledge is not a result of the fall. It's not a result of sin. It's the result of being finite. And so there will still be learning in the new heavens and the new earth. I'll give an example of this. Maybe you have been longing to have a conversation with Moses or with King David your entire life. You just can't wait for the chance to talk with him. Well, Revelation tells us that every single tribe and language and tongue will be present in the new heavens and the new earth. That everyone will worship God in, those new, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth in their own language. Not all of us will be singing Chris Tomlin, How Great Is Our God. So if you want to have that conversation with King David, you're going to need to learn ancient Hebrew. If you want to have a conversation with Paul, well, you're going to need to learn Greek or Aramaic. It might take you a couple years to do that. It might take you a couple hundred years to learn how to speak Mandarin or, or Swahili or a number of other languages, but who cares? It's not like you're going anywhere. Learning will be one of the ways that we worship God through our work in the new heavens and the new earth. See, there will be work in heaven. There will be glorious, joy-filled, Christ-exalting work in the new heavens and the new earth. And recognizing this as we close, recognizing this connection does something very important for us today, too.
It reminds us and gives us confidence that our work today actually matters. Our work here actually matters. How many of you are familiar with the parable of the talents found in Matthew chapter 25? It's a relatively common story. Uh, I'll just summarize it here for us. Uh, Jesus tells the story of there's three different people that are each put in, diff- in charge of different sums of money, all of it relatively large amounts. He gives one person $2.4 million in the modern day equivalents, which is one talent. He gives another $4.8 million or two talents. And he gives another $12.3 million or five talents. Those of us who are familiar with the story could probably tell the rest. One of them, uh, the one with five makes five more. The one with two makes two more. The one with one doesn't make any more. It doesn't make anything with it. And the master comes back. He commends the first and the second. And he casts out the third. But have you ever noticed what he says in the uh, commendation that he gives to the first two? I just want to read this. Matthew 25, 21. It says, And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who is faithful in this life is rewarded. And notice what their reward is. It's more responsibility. It's more work in the age to come. The ultimate reason why your work matters today in light of eternity is because your work today is an act of training. It's preparing you for work in the life to come. It's preparing you for your eternal job of governing God's creation. If you're faithful in your work, no matter how seemingly small and insignificant it might seem to you, then God is going to know that you are worthy of governing a great deal in his heavenly kingdom. In contrast, if you are unfaithful in your work, why should God trust you with all that much in the new heavens and the new earth? Why should he give you much of anything to govern. See, friends, work matters here on earth because the one we live in is the one that we will ultimately live on, yes, but far more importantly than that, work today matters because it determines our work in the future. I'm going to be honest, that didn't really click with me until this past week as I was preparing for this sermon. And when I began to work at my work today as training, as preparation for my eternal job, it was a boost of motivation. You can call me selfish. You can call me greedy. I don't really care, but I don't want to just govern a two by two foot square in God's eternal kingdom for the rest of eternity. I want more than that. Not for my own glory, but to enjoy it to cultivate it to the glory of God. And if we have that mindset, if we look at our work today as a way to prove ourselves worthy of governing more in God's eternal kingdom, it will motivate us. It will change the way we work. It will make us more faithful. It will cause us to seek to do our best. We will want to please God, not only in the life to come, but also in this life, no matter what our positions See, the fact is there will be many governors in the new heavens and the new earth who will work jobs that may seem uh, as insignificant or less valuable in our world's eyes today. 
but many of them will be put in charge of much. A friend of mine who passed away a few years ago spent most of his life working as a garbage collector. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt because of his faithfulness to his wife, his faithfulness to his kids, and his faithfulness at work that he will be put in charge of much in the new heavens and the new earth. Meanwhile, there may be some of us here who are put in charge of very little because we are too concerned with other things in this world to worry about working and proving ourselves faithful for God's kingdom and his final goal for us. See, friends, our work today is training today for reigning tomorrow. It prepares us, it trains us by preparing our hearts to reign with Christ. It prepares us through faithfulness in our work. It gives value to our work today. And it even gives us a little faint glimpse of what heaven will be like in the parts of our jobs that we enjoy. So I encourage you to remember that when you're faced with difficulty in your work. That God is using your work today as a training exercise for tomorrow. And as we all know, not all training is pleasant. In fact, most of it isn't pleasant. But let us prove ourselves faithful through perseverance in our work today so that God will reward us with great responsibility in our work tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have revealed your plan for your people in it. And God, we long for those new heavens and new earth. We long for the day where we get to dwell with you, to fellowship with you, to work alongside of you. God, we are astounded at the great privilege that you have given us to reign alongside of you. So, Father, help us to be counted worthy in this lifetime of governing much in the next. God, we join our voices with the rest of the church throughout the ages saying, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.